0: Listen, I I know that uh, many of you haven't been here at Matthias when we've launched a book, but you're here tonight, okay? And so this will be a unique experience for some of you. For others of you, this happened uh, when we we studied uh, different books of the Bible. But tonight, my friends, we strap on our seatbelt and we get to study, next slide, the unbelievable letter uh, Ephesians, okay? We begin a brand new journey. And I know some of you are already confused because this is, you know, new territory for you. Let me explain. What we do here at Matthias is we just study books of the Bible verse by verse. So literally tonight we're going to study two verses, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That's it. That's what we're studying, okay? And so, you know, it's not going to be a topical teaching we're gonna learn from the word. And next week, when you come back, guess what? We're gonna start in verse three and keep going, okay? There's no surprise. At the end is always Jesus. And that's what we're doing here glorifying Christ, using his word, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So, that said, to launch this journey, open your Bibles, turn into your phones to this awesome letter to the church in Ephesus called Ephesians, chapter one, verse one. You guys excited? It's gonna be an awesome, awesome journey. Super, super pumped. Of all the letters, this is uh, certainly one of, if not the favorite of mine. Uh, I've been anxious to teach this ever since we began 11 years ago as a church. So let's start here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, most times when you read an email and the person puts two or salutations or good morning, uh, most often we skip right on that, skip right by it because we're interested in the meat and potatoes, right? We're already like scanning down to see what the subject of the text is. We miss the greeting. If we miss this greeting, I'm telling you right now, we miss so much. What seems like a nice hi from Paul actually has so much depth in it so because of the depth I want to split this statement up in a couple different ways let's begin with just the first section Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God now I say Paul we read Paul and some of you instantly know who that is others of you aren't aware and and it's it's all good no matter where you're at in the spectrum But I want to rally all of us on who our author is. There there are some that contest that the authorship of Ephesians is Paul, but I think it's pretty obvious here. Paul, an apostle, okay, like he puts his name right on it. So let's figure out where this Paul comes from. Let's figure out who our author is. Let's start here in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, and that's interesting, right, to some of you because you're like, well, I thought we were going to talk about Paul. Well, as you can see, there's this one letter shift his pre-Jesus name is Saul, later uh, changed to Paul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, goes to the high priest. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar with Saul, uh, who he was is he was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer of those who followed Christ. He marginalized those who claimed Jesus. That's who he was. So he was essentially an officer against the movement of the Christ. So he's still breathing these threats and murder, and verse two says, while going to the high priest, he asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the, what's the word there? To the way. Really, really interesting. Why, why is the movement of Christ called the way? Well, we see this in, in many different aspects in the book of Acts. The reason is Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in part, the movement of Christ is called the way because Jesus is the way. But also, and secondarily, it's because the way of Christ is a lifestyle. We follow Jesus and we're following Jesus' way. Walking in step with the Spirit following where he goes. And so the early movement of Christ in Acts in ancient Mesopotamia was called the way. He asks for letters okay, to the synagogues in Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul's intent, I want to go to Damascus and I want to bind up some Christians. I want to find some followers of the way and persecute them. Um, It's unbelievable the things that happen When we think we're on our way to do one thing, and then all of a sudden, God makes an entrance. And that's what happens here to Saul. Look at verse 3. Next slide. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, this persecutor, this murderer, this man who stood at the side of Stephen, the, the martyr, just a couple days before this, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And the, and the word is me. Don't you love that Jesus aligns himself with his followers? If you're persecuting them, Jesus says, we'll find out here in a second, you're persecuting me. So this murderer falls on his face after a light shines from heaven and hears a thunderous voice from the glories say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse five, interesting stuff. Check this out, next slide. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, just so we're on the same page, Jesus has ascended to heaven He died, he resurrected, now he ascended. And so so Saul is literally encountering the risen Christ here. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Look at verse six, it's crazy. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. I, I mean, this dude's walking on the road to Damascus on his way to kill Christians. He falls on his face, light shining around and now Jesus is saying, go over here and then you're gonna be told what to do. I mean, the reversal of life, the life getting upended in seconds, some of you relate to, many of you resonate with, because this story is so closely aligned to yours. And you're like, well, I'm I'm not a murderer. I've never persecuted any Christians to the point of death. Maybe not, but I'll guarantee you this. You need God's grace just as much as Paul did, and just as much as David did, the adulterer and the murderer, and just as much as the pornographer, and just as much, and on and on and on. We all need the grace of the Lord. And so this man, all of a sudden, gets uprooted by the power of Christ. Next slide. So we see as this goes on, Paul, this man, changed, conformed, uh, stepped in on, is an apostle. Of Christ Jesus, and I want you to see this, by the will of God. Was Paul looking for God? No, he's on the road to Damascus on his way to kill Christians. So being called an apostle is 100% the will of God. God's like, you're mine. You're not looking for me. In fact, you're looking against me. You're an adversary, but now you are mine. You are a lost sheep. I'm a good shepherd, and I'm bringing you back to the flock. That's what's happening here. And he's an apostle. Now, the word apostle, it means one who sends. And more specifically, in this context, an apostle is one who's been commissioned by the risen Jesus. Well, all the disciples saw and were commissioned by the risen Christ, and now Paul finds himself seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, an apostle called by the power of Christ and the will of God. There's one truth that's going to be banging like a gong through all of Ephesians, and certainly is summarized by the story of Paul. It is this truth right here. The gospel disrupts. Disrupts in such a powerful, abrupt way. Such a breaking way. I mean, you're walking through life. Paul, walking through life, thinking one way, living one way. And all of a sudden, the gospel just grabs him and literally shakes the foundation of his life, so much so that he falls on his face. We come to find out later, blinded for days. The gospel disrupts. It steps in. It shakes. Uh, the, the problem is, uh, for you and I, is it still disruptive? Do we still find that the beauty of the truth of the gospel, which literally means good news, the good news that we were separated from God, but now in Christ we have grace and love and an eternity with him, that's the good news, is it still disruptive? Or are you and I lulled to sleep by the normalcy of life another day? Life living us, life train wrecking us, life rolling over us. My question, is the gospel still disruptive? Is it still shaking the foundation of your life? Is it still making entrance? It did for Paul, and it also will, next slide for the end of this text. Now, he writes this letter to the saints, to the believers, who are in Ephesus. Now, quick uh, a confession to you. I'm obsessed with Ephesus. I love it. I love Ephesus. I love everything about it. And the reason is I love history. I like war history. I like uh, understanding history. I think it shapes our context of the present. We have one of the most detailed accounts of Ephesus out of all of the Pauline letters. And so when we, when we see a word Ephesus in a city Ephesus, we're not just going to understand it from a, from a word We're literally now going to unearth where this letter is written to, not just by a man to a city, but to a city with a history. Next slide. Cue the Google Maps. This is Ephesus. I know that helps you out a lot, just that little red dot there. Um, Just so you can see it in context, you can see the turkey there is cut off. I know that's making some of you hungry. Greece is just to the left there. Let's pull back out. I think this will help a little bit more. Next slide. On our next map. The red dot here is, uh, is where Asia Minor is. It's where modern-day Turkey is. It's where Ephesus is. The green uh, the square is Jerusalem. So just to get some context on where Christ died, now where the gospel is moving to, Asia Minor. You can see Italy on your left, Egypt there at the bottom of your screen, Saudi Arabia and the like. So are we all together now? Do you have some geographical sense? Okay, This is where Ephesus is. Now, there's a lot of interesting things to note about Ephesus, and I want to walk you through those things, and I hope you're as interested in it as I am. Next slide. Ephesus in the time of Paul. Number one, it was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world. All estimations say 200 to 250,000 people. And for ancient times, that is a whole lot of people without modern-day sanitation. This is why the plague could move around, right? Like, there's a ton of people in a dense area. The second interesting thing about Ephesus is this. Next slide. It was a port city with tremendous trade intersections. So you saw that it was on the sea, but to the north, south, and east, there were massive roads that made Ephesus this, like, melting pot, of diversity, of culture. It also made it a melting pot of polytheism. Now, monotheism is the belief in one God, mono, right? One God, not like the sickness mono. What do they call it? Anyway, but, but poly, polytheistic, is the belief in many gods. Well, you have all these people from all these cultures, and you have on top of it Roman and Greek influence, what happens then is there's this collision course of God's everywhere. That was Ephesus. The third thing I think makes it really really interesting is it had, I mean this is ancient times guys. It had an amphitheater that could fit 20 to 25,000 people. And the crazier thing is it still stands today. Check this out. Unbelievable. Look at that. Still stands. I've been to Israel. Uh, I've got to see many parts of where Jesus walked. I have not been to Ephesus, but I cannot wait to stand in the court of this theater. Here's another angle of it just so you guys can get the full perspective. I mean, look at that, crazy. Now, I want you to keep this image in your mind because what happens in this theater, and it's almost as if God preserved it so that we could have perspective. What happens in this theater is the utter depiction of the power of God and how it can work. And so just keep this picture in your mind while we look at number four and five here about Ephesus. It was also the mother city of Asia, so the fourth or fifth largest city in the world, but in terms of Asia, it was considered the mother, madre, for the bilingual. And number five, Ephesus in the time of Paul, materialism sensuality tremendous, tremendously oversexed, and perverted idolatrous practices drove the culture. People tell me all the time, Mark, we're, like, we're so above and beyond in terms of our sexuality. And then I say, do you, do you know the sexual practices in ancient times? When, when I was in Israel traveling around, there were Roman bathhouses where everyone would go publicly to take a bath, that would then turn into orgies. What I'm saying is like sin hasn't developed. Maybe the expression has changed in the development of pornography and the like, but even back in this time in Ephesus, sensuality and the driving of it is a tremendous part of the culture, perverted, idolatrous practices. You have all these gods, well, all these religions are gonna have ways to idolatrize and worship these gods. That's Ephesus. Well, what happens in this wee little town of Ephesus, listen to this, crazy, 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 is all of a sudden, Paul shows up. It's his third missionary journey. He's seen a lot of the world. He's already been smacked, beaten, stoned, and left for dead. Persecuted. The one who was doing the marginalizing now has been the marginalized, the one who was doing the persecuting now stands and sits on the side of being persecuted. The one, listen, who murdered and oversaw the murders of Christians will one day go on to be executed and that man shows up in this culture in Ephesus. Check this out, next slide. And he entered, did Paul in Acts 19, the synagogue and for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Three months. We get and lose patience after 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes with a neighbor, three months. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of, that's right, here you go again, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now what happens is, he leaves the synagogue, the synagogue, like the place of normal worship. And he goes to the equivalent of a lecture hall where, like, the pools of intelligence are gathered, where the philosophers have come, where the scholars are now residing. And he just hops right up in this lecture hall. And check this out in verse 10. This is crazy. Look at this. Next slide. This continued for two years, two years, boldly proclaiming the teachings of Jesus so that, look at this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, what we believe here at Matthias is the Bible is true. It's inerrant. There's no errors in it. If that's true, that means this is true. Paul comes in, the message the Ministry of Reconciliation, so compelling, the truth so countercultural, whether people believe it or not, all of a sudden, the message has spread to all of Asia. Imagine this. Imagine the intrusion of the gospel. Imagine the disruption of the gospel. Well, uh, the problem is uh, the culture the trade in Ephesus uh, is not going to deal well with Paul's preaching. Because what happens is when you start preaching the gospel in culture, it means you're going to be going against the grain of it. It doesn't matter whether you're in Ephesus. It doesn't matter whether you're in Egypt or Wentzville where the rodeos are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter. Whenever you start preaching the message of Christ, then you are preaching something that is going completely counter the culture. Do we agree? Now, just for an example, look what happens in Ephesus. Chaos. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning, here it is again, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Artemis. Good old Artemis. Oh, that's the Greek word for Princess uh, Diana, the goddess, we could say, Diana. Now, Artemis, uh, thankfully for us, we have some uh, images of what she looked like because making statues was the common trade in the land. There, there she is. Uh, as you can see, uh, she's a very interesting-looking goddess uh, by many regards. But this, this goddess dictated life in Ephesus. So much so that the major way that people made money in Ephesus was to make these. Make them and sell them. So much so, so much so was the belief in Artemis and her power that one of these seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world, was her temple. Here's a rendition of what it might have looked like. Look at this. One of the seven wonders of the world built to worship a man-made object. Now, the belief about Artemis was that she could protect her people from evil spirits. She could pull her people out of the grips of evil spirits. It was very occultish. It had tremendous demonic overtones, but Ephesus was gripped by it. And Demetrius is like, look, we've got a problem here. Paul has come and he's begun, begun to preach and his message is going completely against our trade. Here's another rendition just to give you a visual of how epic this structure was. Incredible, incredible stuff. I drew, I drew that with crayon earlier. Next slide. Now look at this. Verse 25. These he gathered together, the other silversmiths, with the workmen in similar trades. Please see this, my friends. And he said, men... You know that from this business we have our wealth. This is how we make our cash. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. And what's his message? Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Man-made gods are no gods at all. Paul came into Ephesus looking right at the silversmiths saying all those things that you're making right there and you're making your money on, guess what? Those are worthless. Let me tell you about a king who is not worthless, about a king who actually gives you worth. That is an inanimate object, and it will one day be dust and crumble and fall. But let me tell you about a God who won't. That's his message. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine the tension and the friction that the message was creating Everything that Paul was preaching was against these objects that these men were making. And he, they literally say, like, what in the world? Like, he, he's turned and persuaded away a great many people. Could you imagine perceiving all of this? Next slide. Look at this beautiful stuff in verse 27. And there is danger. I long for our culture to say this about the movement of the way. There is danger of the way taking over. There is danger of the love of Christ sinking so deep in the roots of our community that all that we've built for ourselves is going to go away. There is danger. Don't you long for that to be said? There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis uh, Artemis, may be counted as nothing. He is literally saying the message of the gospel is so powerful that it's threatening one of the seven wonders of the world. The message, the word, the truth, man-made gods are no gods at all, is literally threatening one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Can you imagine? Not much has changed. We bear on us the same message. Looking at the same sins. Gazing at similar people. In desperate need of God's grace. And who must believe that man made gods are no gods at all. That device will provide you nothing. That relationship ultimately is so temporal. Our lives are but a mist, but dust. But let me tell you about something. All of these things are no gods at all, but there is one God. And imagine the beauty when you get to watch friends around you who used to think that this object held all of the beauty of the world. And then all of a sudden, their wonders of the world get, get squenched to nothing in view of the beauty of God. This is what's happening. The demonic activity is being threatened by a message of love and reconciliation. Are you kidding me? There is no other message that can threaten the grandeur of architecture like that of the way but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and not just that, and that she, not just her stuff or her temple, but that she herself may even be deposed from her magnificence. This message is dethroning Artemis. I get so discouraged when I look at the gods, lowercase in our culture, the gods that I bend the knee to, the gods that succumb me, the gods that I find all of us seemingly struggling with. I get so so discouraged. Because when you when you put our God against all of these things, it's no comparison. Seriously, like let's let's just be as blunt and, and equivalent as we possibly can. Our God and the beauty of Him and the grace of Him versus porn. Like there, there is absolutely no comparison. We go here for comfort. We go here for encouragement. We go here for some sort of drug and appeal. And all of that in comparison to the love of a true God who comforts us well beyond three or four minutes of pleasure. You name the vice. You name the struggle. You put whatever it is you want on this side. When you compare those two things, there is never a comparison. Why do we go to here then? Why, like a dog returns to its vomit, are we lured, lured by the vomitous acts when God has said, no, no, actually, actually there's another way. They were threatened by the taking away of the magnificence of all of this stuff. And tonight, some of you will have that precise moment where all the things that seem magnificent, where all the things like that you've believed so much will provide you with everything. I'm praying right now that the magnificence of these things would be diminished just by the simple beauty of who God is. So they're, they're, they're threatening that. She whom all Asia and the world worship, the silversmiths say. Now, are you ready for this? Check this out. Next slide. When they heard this, they were enraged. They were enraged so much so, they started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The message is clear. The power of demonic activity clear. And now all of a sudden, you have good in the Lord and evil pitted up against each other. Look at what happens next. Crazy, crazy in Ephesus. Verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into what? Into what? Come on. The theater. The same theater that we just saw, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrats, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Verse 30 is epic. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So it's this image, right? Like the whole city, next slide, is gathered into here. Just picture this. And there at the base, you have Paul like having to be held back. Let me go in there. Come on, just give me a few minutes. I've been preaching here for three years. Like, just give me a second. And literally, like, pulling, pulling his clothes. He writes in 1 Corinthians, does Paul, that when he went to Ephesus, he had many adversaries. And he, he gets so specific in 1 Corinthians that he said, I literally fought with beasts. Now, I believe, and many commentators believe those weren't, like, physical beasts, like wild hogs or something. But it was literally the adversaries, the, the confused people. But my friends... In this moment, as you look at that theater and you picture the scene, can you please believe, next slide, this truth with me? That the gospel disrupts. It disrupts. It comes into what seems normal and flips it on its head. Literally the entire Asia with one message of reconciliation, one message of truth and love, and it comes in and creates upheaval. And we think that following Christ is some sort of normal, lackadaisical way of life. That is not the gospel. It is always disrupting, it is always stepping in, it is always creating upheaval. And yes, sometimes in the gentlest, most merciful and gracious ways, but other times in ways that literally shake the earth. So I think it's necessary for us, next slide, to deal with some ways that the gospel actually does disrupt. Listen, please take this journey with me, please. Number one is this. Our perception of identity built on our flesh and the enemy is this. You're worthless. Every sin that you've, that you've created and done and participated in has made you into who you are. You might as well just go ahead and end it all. You're worthless. You rats, you don't deserve a thing. Our flesh breathing that, the enemies bleeding those lies into our ears. Do you know what the gospel does? it literally comes and just runs over who our identity was and all of a sudden says, no, 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 just wait a second. This is who you were, but guess who you are now? You are a son and daughter of the Most High, an heir to the throne, that's who you are. Don't listen to the enemy and your flesh that try to put you back in your past. You now are a new creation. Do you guys see all of the identity pieces that we struggle so much, the insecurities, That many of you are being put in a coffin every day, and the gospel comes in and railroads it and says, No, 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 you're a new creation. You're a son and a daughter of the king, you're an heir to the throne. Do not let one lie confuse who you are. The gospel also, next slide, disrupts this the way that you love and the way that you are loved. Here's what I've learned. Um, It's easier, it seems, for believers to love others and to love God than it is to receive the love of God. Do you resonate with that? Uh, We enjoy loving others because it often gets us something. When we love and serve others, it often gets us some accolades. It, It gives us some love back that is tangible, form of a hug or, you know, some sort of eye contact that says, I saw that. But when it comes to receiving God's love, then we, like, we get put back on the defense. We're like, I'm not deserving. I can't tangibly feel it. God, are you loving me, we question. Well, what happens when the gospel disrupts all of that? Is it shapes your view of loving others, building it on response to God's love of you. First John says, we only love because he what? first loved us. So the gospel disrupts the culture, our flesh, the enemy say love only those who love you. Only love in response of people. The gospel says love others in response of God's love. And the love of a father is so deep and rich and the breath so wide the scripture says it's a love that you can never be separated from. I know That some of the most detrimental lies that all of you hear is you can't be loved. You are not lovable. There's no way, there's no way the God of the universe seeing all the wretched things that you've done and thought could ever love you. The disruption of the gospel is that is precisely the good news. He's seen every thought. He's he's seen every deed. I mean, the most grotesque thing you have ever, ever considered in your head, he's seen it and still, and still is gracious and still says, I love you and still says, those things don't shape your identity. I do. The disruption of the gospel, we're just getting started. It's so beautiful. It completely, completely railroads self-centered living. It takes all of this ideology, that the galaxy is built around us for our pleasure and for our gain. And what the gospel does, putting it on a T, is it says, actually, um, to gain your life, you must first lose it. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Die to your flesh. Give up yourself. And in so doing, Joy and life to the full. Life unbelievable, life unspeakable. Somehow that in the death of our life, we find the most life completely railroading. Everything that we believe in our flesh and the enemy is trying to feed us. No, no, no. Don't believe all those things over there. Did God really say? Actually, if you spend one more day on the hamster wheel of your sin, I know the past hasn't provided Always the enemy is providing empty promises that never deliver. Tomorrow, this one more time, I'm telling you, this one time, it's going to give you what it didn't. All those other times. You guys have heard that crap in your ears. I've heard it all my life. One more time. One more time. It's going to give you something, I promise. This time. I know all those years it never did, but right now it's going to. The gospel railroads that disrupts self-centered living and instead offers life through death how about this next slide the gospel also disrupts every decision that is ever made in your entire life the moment like saul on the road to damascus the gospel just just stampedes you with love and grace every decision has now the opportunity to be completely shaped by the good news of jesus Every decision. Well, Mark, what about what I eat? Like, are you are you serious? Like how like how would that have some sort of gospel impact? Because everything that we do in our life is either an opportunity to worship and glorify God or to satisfy ourselves, down to eating the food that we eat down to the people that we pursue and the conversations that we have tonight. You guys are gonna have umpteenth amount of opportunities to either obey the Lord or not, and the gospel disrupts those decisions. It shakes those decisions. It causes believers to sit back, guided by the Holy Spirit, and say, no, like, I do not have to do that. I don't have to indulge. I don't have to give in again. And in the beauty of it, in the beauty of it, offering another way, do you guys see? Offering another way. This is what the gospel does. But how about this? It also, next slide, disrupts every relational interaction. I love what Chelsea shared. We can completely, completely give in. Let's talk about the weather again. Let's talk about frivolous things that at the end of the day get us nowhere. Let's talk, 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 talk. At the end of the day, about nothing, it seems. But when the gospel disrupts your relational interaction, it's not that your opening line is, hey, I have a Bible, can I smack and right hook you on the chin? I'm not saying that at all. But you start asking questions that get to the heart of people because these people are people and not projects and they have heart and hurts and wounds. And what you find is when you actually are gospel disrupted in your life and you start asking people questions that matter, they start sharing things that matter. Why? Because it's it's so in that moment weird for them to actually be asked a question where someone seems sincerely interested. Oh what you actually care? Yeah, I, I noticed yesterday, man, it seemed like you're having a bad day. Like what what was going on? And then the unthinkable. All of a sudden you get brought in to the hurt and the wounds. And maybe, Lord willing, by the Holy Spirit's move, get to share. Where hope actually comes from. The gospel disrupts our relationships. And somebody, please see this. The gospel disrupts in a complete way who is forgivable. Look around you right now. Look at me. Look at Paul. David, the adulterer and the murderer, considered a man after God's own heart. You compile all of the sins in this room. We go one by one, pass the mic, have every person just share, down the line, go ahead, bring us into everything you've ever done. And it would be so easy in that moment to say, whoa, whoa, that brother has done too much. There's no possible way God could forgive them. Are you kidding me? I can't believe that person did that. Oh my goodness, when we start categorizing, the gospel shakes The foundations of who can be forgiven because the answer is everybody in Christ. The pedophile. The pedophile can be forgiven. The person who has committed adultery on their spouse 15 times can be forgiven. The man who took the life of a child can be forgiven. Those who are so gripped in this room right now with lies and deceit can be forgiven. Those who have looked at pornography every night for the last year can be forgiven. Those who have a gossiping mouth so much so that it defames every person you ever speak about can be forgiven. Look around you. The gospel disrupts forgiveness. Now you see the true power of why the gospel is so counter-cultural. It is literally the opposite of every single thing that in this world we are naturally born into. My kids, beautiful, beautiful children when they came out of the womb, beautiful kids as they were growing up, but until they met Christ, The scripture says they are born sinners separated from God in desperate need of his grace. That's where we are because of what happened in the garden. And so the question is, how does this disruption actually make inroads in our life? Well, I don't think it's a mistake that verse 2 of chapter 1 ends this way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which again feels just like a nice way of you know, passing the peace. Here's a little grace. I already said hi. We gave some hugs. We feel good about ourselves from the nice greeting. I'm gonna go ahead and throw out some flippant Christianese because it lands in seven other Pauline letters. Grace and peace to you, everyone. No? I think when Paul says grace... He's saying it because he's tasted it. I think when he says grace to you, he's saying it because he knows who he was and who he is. I think when he's writing this letter in 62 AD, even though he left Ephesus in 55 AD, some seven or eight years has has passed now since he's been there. I think when he says grace to you, he is saying all can be forgiven. The power of Christ is that all can experience grace. All can taste what I've tasted. So grace to you. And so please, please, when you're reading the scripture, and it's so easy to pass by the greetings as some nice hellos and goodbyes, start to unearth what's actually happening in them. Next slide. But there's a problem The problem is that it seems like Ephesus is disruptive in a healthy way by the gospel. It seems that they've, they're starting to turn towards Christ even though some are still confused. Uh, it seems like the, the church is being planted and Priscilla and Aquila who were there at the beginning and Paul is discipling. And spend th- like, it seems like the gospel is moving forward. But in Revelation... In a teaching or encouragement from the writer to seven different churches, this is the verse about the church in Ephesus. So many, many years later, the writer says this But I have this against you, church in Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So apparently, what's happened in the church in Ephesus is that there was this initial, I want disruption from the gospel. I want it, I long for it. I'm thankful for it. But through complacency, through time, it's as if they've gotten to this place now where they're like, just leave me alone. I'll take you when it's convenient. I'll take you when I need forgiveness. I'll take you when it's gonna be nice to applaud you with some of my friends. I'll take you when cultural Christianity is gonna make sense. But really, in reality, I want no disruption. I just wanna live my life, and at the end of the day, we'll call it good, right? Hugs all around. I'm in glory with you in heaven forever. No no worries. But the writer of Revelation says, no, 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 you, you've forgotten your first love. You celebrated the disruption. You were okay with the persecution. You didn't mind the rejection. You saw what used to be magnificent. But now in the face of the power of God, this stuff is seen for what it is, is—vomitus. But what happened like how did all of a sudden life take over again what what happened in this complacent lethargic pieces of your heart so all of that said i have a very poignant question to ask every single person myself included tonight is the gospel a welcomed disruption in your life Do whatever, Jesus. I know it's not gonna feel normal. I know there's gonna be rejection. I know it may mean that somehow in your sovereignty I get some rare disease or some rare sickness that I might glorify you in it. I know that it may mean that my life doesn't look like the American picture of a dream family. I know that it may mean infertility and that we struggle having kids. I know that it may mean this city thinks X, Y, Z about me and on and on and on. But Jesus, here I am. Bring the disruption. Because you disrupted my life with your love. You disrupted my life with forgiveness and purpose and mission and identity and hope And please, Jesus, don't stop disrupting me. Two categories of people I really want to hone in on. First of all, there's many of you here that have never, ever, ever had the gospel disruption that Saul has. You've been living very distant from Jesus, you've been living in a way that is only feeding your flesh, you would consider yourself not a follower of Christ. And it can seem like that um, these gatherings and the sharing of it is, you know, like Brandon's just doing his job, Mark's just doing his job. Let me tell you a story. We uh, led a pastor conference, a church planning conference here yesterday. And I was in a room leading a About 30, 35 other lead pastors, pastors. All in a room together. Anytime you get a bunch of pastors in the room, you know, it can it can get interesting. But all of a sudden, the spirit got so thick in the room, you could almost see it. And all I did was ask the question. I said, Men, fill in the blank. Jesus as a servant leader, dot, dot, dot. No one had their Bibles. No one was preaching a sermon. No one was saying anything to make sure that they were seen in a particular light. We all in that room just started talking about Jesus. He was a servant leader when he pursued the woman at the well. He was a servant leader when all of a sudden he found himself in Zacchaeus' home. He was a servant leader when he spent time with blind Bartimaeus. He was a servant leader when he had time for the leper to touch him. Half an hour, story after story. Barely a dry eye in the place. And in that moment, yesterday, one of the most powerful times of worship in my entire life, I believed in the power of Christ so incredibly much that I could not wait to look at some of you tonight who are in disbelief and say this, man-made gods are no gods at all. The works of your hands are getting you nowhere. And tonight your life in the most loving, gracious, merciful way, can be disrupted by the shed blood of a son who was sent by a father so that you could be forgiven. Some of you are like, well, how can I be saved? The scripture says, call on the name of the Lord. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe for some of you, the call tonight is just, Jesus, just disrupt my life. I have lived in disbelief, and I am ready to believe. I'm ready to follow. I don't even know what that looks like. Save me, Lord. The second category of people are to the complacent believers here. Those who have been trading the magnificent things of God for what seemed to be the magnificent things of the world. the believers here who have gotten tired of the disruption. No more, Jesus. I want to live for me on my time, on my schedule, and for my glory. Believers in the room, the time of repentance is right now. Trading all of that complacency for what right now could all of a sudden be this moment in your life where the gospel shakes the foundations of your being again. Yes, maybe you forgot your first love like the church in Ephesus, but tonight, but tonight, maybe right now is the moment where all of a sudden the love of him confronts you again, disrupts you again, railroads you again. That's the power of the gospel. Let's stand together. There are nine times in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word ha-satan is used. That's the word for Satan. Nine times in the entire Old Testament. The moment that Jesus begins his ministry, he begins being confronted by demons. Demons. He's casting demons out of the possessed. He's sending demons into the herds. He's hearing demons confess that he is the son of God. Why? Because the gospel is disruptive. Down to the fibers of spirituality. He started healing on the Sabbath. The no-nos of the pharisaical world. The Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes wanted to kill him because of how he healed on the Sabbath. Why? Because the gospel is disruptive. It looks in the face of religion. It looks at the heightened moments of understanding and writes a new script. And no one was expecting that the one true king Would all of a sudden willingly, as a sacrificial lamb, place himself as a king on an execution stake. Why, you ask? Because all of creation was waiting for that one story of a savior to disrupt everything. And he did it, they were waiting on a savior to put himself as a sacrifice. And he, in a non-militant, but like a lamb way, placed himself there so that you could know the power of God. The gospel is, in nature, disruptive. And as the stories of a Savior echo through the walls of this room right now may we cry out to that king and ask ask for him to continue to disrupt our lives father come as scary as it is to pray as fearful as we are to speak it do what you need to do to glorify your name in our lives. Bring what you need to bring. Take what you need to take. Call us to where you need to call us. Disrupt us by your love yet again, oh God.